0: What's up, TDP fam? Today, the DAP Project is flashing back to our conversation with the Social Justice School leaders, Myron Long and Brandon Johnson. We hope you enjoy our talk while you soak up the back-to-school vibes emanating from students and families across America. Afterwards, go pick up our TDPB reading book of the month, The State Must Provide. This book is by Adam Harris. Come get hip with us during September as we explore the inequities in higher education and how to set them right. Let's get into it.
1: <laughs> You're listening to the Dot Project. I am Rhonda Elizabeth,
0: and I am Aaron Stalworth. or I am Aaron Harvey. Which sounds better? I don't know. Aaron Harvey Stalworth. Which you made? What you had in there originally?
1: <laughs> that's your name. <laughs> The DAP Project is a podcast that explores culture and politics through DAP, the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture.
0: We have conversations with Black men from all walks of life and ask them about one unifying element about being Black men, DAP.
1: And as we emerge from a disastrous presidency, a period of racial reckoning, and a global pandemic that is ongoing, we're asking. What does it mean to come back better? How can we use a radical imagination to envision and create the world we deserve? Did you know that Robin D.G. Kelly...
0: Nobody in the world ever wins success or a place of usefulness until he or she is absolutely wedded to a cause. Those are the words of D.C. educator of years past, Miss Nanny Helen Burroughs. Our guests are Myron Long and Brandon Johnson. Co founders of the Social Justice School. Myron and Brandon would bring pride to Nanny Burroughs as they bring life to her words. These two gentlemen are absolutely wedded to an impactful cause through their establishment and leadership of the Social Justice School in Northeast DC, where their mission is to catalyze an integrated community of middle school learners to be scholar activists who are designers of a more just world and receive an education that embraces and lives out a set of core beliefs about what it means to be human. What is powerful about the Social Justice School is that it restores dignity to an education system that has not only disappointed many groups of children, but predestined a difficult life. This is a conversation for parents, educators, students, anyone seeking to create community and pursue justice through education. Let's get into it. Founder of the Social Justice School, Myron, welcome to the DAP Project.
2: Thank you all for having me. Thank you for the kind words. We really
0: appreciate it. Absolutely. All facts, all facts. I got more to say, but <laughs> we're going to move on for now. <laughs> but Myron, um, Myron. <laughs> He
1: just said Myron. <laughs>
0: Myron, we asked you to bring a friend along. This, uh, Myron, we asked you to bring a, bring a friend along for the uh, talk on the DAP Project. Please introduce you brought along with you
2: awesome this is my main man my right-hand man founding principal brandon johnson fellow father fellow black man brother from another wouldn't be in this world without him brandon johnson
0: hey 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 hey. welcome to the DAP project brandon
3: man thank y'all for having me i appreciate it appreciate it if you can think of the very
0: first time you gave somebody DAP.
3: That was like something that you always saw on the basketball court. Uh, you know especially in like the neighborhood, uh, just watching guys like play together. Um, you know, when you first got to the court, you saw your friends and everybody that you know. and um, you know so I feel like I probably started giving that from a young age, but uh, the time like it really started to mean something for me was about fifth even sixth grade uh, because like the handshake started to become a little bit more complex. Like you got the basic, like what's good, like, you know, the typical, but then it got more complex depending on the, on like the circle or the friendships and then playing sports, uh, you know, me and my teammates, we all had different handshakes. So uh, yeah, you know, I, it definitely goes back to the elementary, elementary days. Yeah. Same for
2: me. Uh, didn't necessarily play a bunch of sports per se, but uh, <laughs> I do remember, um, like, just coming to the neighborhood and seeing the older guys in my neighborhood and how they would give, like, you know, the strength of the DAP also meant something. So, you know, if they give you that, like, ah, like, pull you in, like, you could tell it was like, I'm pulling you in, young blood. You got to listen to this, stuff. I'm going to say it real quick. Uh, and then, like Brandon said, <laughs> you know, you got a complex, you give, you know, bop, 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 we give them all of that. And it's funny, like, my daughter now knows that. Like, when I say DAP, she, like, Knows how to do it, right? Dap, dap, dap yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like it's funny how you teach that. It's like a cultural message that it gets passed down from generation to generation.
0: Uh, this might give a little, give us some bio on how y'all met. But when you all first met, do you recall if you gave dap or was it a handshake or, or a head nod? Or do
3: you recall? <laughs> You, you know, the funny part is like you, you, when you get in certain spaces and it's not with so many brothers in the room, yeah. it's eye like, contact like, yeah, you good, too. Yeah, yeah, I'm here for it. And uh, you know, we were going around introducing ourselves, t- talking about how we approached the work. And you know, it was a circle, so we didn't necessarily get to like physically dap up, but it's like our eyes was like, cool, cool. And you know, it's like hey, I'm Brandon, hey, I'm Myron. Uh, and it was like, cool, cool. And I, and and then in that moment, I believe, I feel like we did that to each other. But I, at first, I was like, did we, did we handshake, try to hit with the formal, Myron? I don't know. I, I, don't <laughs> think I, think,
2: I don't think we did the formal, but I do remember the locking eyes. And it was like, you know, like there's the hand knob, but then there's like the recognition of like, oh, another brother in the space. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I, I do remember that. We were down at uh at the City Bridge office. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. How long ago was this? Ooh, that was
3: 2015, maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. 15, 16. Yeah, yeah, about 2015, 16. Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: crazy, and you became tight ever since.
3: So in the last five years. Listen, we, uh, man, we've done so much life together in these last. Yeah. Five years. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's the funny part is the intimacy. What happens when you you like build something together, and then like naturally how life will just happen and, and you're yeah. connected because you're doing the work, but also because you're living uh, through the work. So, uh, you know, we, we experience a lot of like hard things together, but also a lot of joyful things together. You know, we always laugh, but, you know, I think he, he saw my second child born. I saw both of his kids born, you know, it's just, it's just a lot. We've been through a whole, whole bunch of things together.
0: Are there any men uh, from the neighborhood or from just life that you recall uh, who gave you just a memorable dap? Or just like, when you, when you think of dap, you think of these this gentleman, whether it be an elder, or whether it be a friend, anybody come to mind?
3: So I, I have two. So I think the first one is definitely gonna have to be my father. Uh, you know, my, my father, uh, you know, wasn't a super hugger. Um, you know, we, we, we were close, uh, but it was real, like it was more of a formal relationship. And then I think when I was 12 or 13, um, I was coming home and I, and I said something and, and we were just having a conversation. It was really kind of a dense conversation. And I got out the car and he just I mean, it was like the and it was a hard like, you know, he had strong hands. And I, I remember like in my mind, I was thinking about like the strength. It was like all of the wisdom and the strength and the power that he had in that moment was transferred for me. And he like he just like tapped me and then like he held it and he just looked at me and then he just like he did like this. And I, I never really like understood it, um, but it was that moment of just like uh, I felt like an infinite connection to him. Um, that that moment I never for, I, I'll never forget. Um, it was like we had a sub conversation, even though we didn't say anything to each other. Um, and it was just a powerful moment. And then the second one was uh, there was this guy, it was a dude in my neighborhood, and like everybody kind of wanted to be like him. He was like a really good uh, athlete, and um, you know everybody just kind of looked up to him. And, um, you know, we're on the court doing our thing and I'm playing, and had you know, play, play pretty good pickup ball. at the end of the game, like, you know, he he gave me a little like slap on the chest and then he got me up. He said, good. He's like, man, good play, young blood. Good.
0: good play, young blood. Nothing like hearing that from the older dudes on the basketball court. Myron, what comes to mind for you?
2: I remember when some of my students started to teach me that that they would use in their own neighborhood. And that just really. Uh, made me honor because they were letting me into a part of their language and their lifestyle that you know they didn't have to, but they felt that that connection and that and and it lasted for generations. So I saw these students. I had them in seventh grade, and then even when they're in high school, it was like the same DAP all the way up until they graduated from high school. Um, so that was also a beautiful, beautiful thing. So
1: Myron in DC, how did DAP show up in the different neighborhoods?
2: Yeah, so you know, um, I grew up uptown, and um, I went to Coolidge for um, high school. And so, you know, growing up, growing up uptown, you know, us uptown guys, we always thought we had to be like extra with it. So you know, we were the kind of guys you had to have like your your madness shirt with your shoes to match. Madness is this old. Like fashion icon in DC. And so our DAP used to be real, like, complicated, you know, because we just thought we had to be, like, extra, extra fly back in the day. And it used to be interesting to see how, like, the uptown DAP was different from, like, the Southeast DAP and the Southwest and the Northeast. Um, and just all variations that really, like, to us also, like, aligned to, like, the clothes they wore and the music that they listened to in a different band. So, you know, you could tell that, like, folks from like Southeast where Essence and Junkyard. It was a little like a little harder, a little harder that you know to be I mean? up in uptown listen to the backyard. It was a little right, a little rough at all, you know. What I mean? You know, <laughs> he's like, no, I'm not trying to fire, just give me some dap, you know. Right. It's like that. No. <laughs> Like it's not that deep, you
1: know, it's not, it's not that deep. Right, right, <laughs> like, what's right. Up, young
2: right. Right, right. Like,
3: no, he's like
2: hitting my chest a little too hard, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what it was like for me growing up in D.C.
1: So that's that on that in D.C. Brandon, what was happening in Bowie and Silver Spring? Oh, so first
3: off, like, you know, Bowie had its race issues too. Uh it was still predominantly black, but it definitely had white folks. But black folks mainly hung out with black folks, and white folks hung out with white folks. It was still very segregated. And then like when I got to the age where I was really like more aware of like race and like just culture, uh and transition to Silver Spring, um, it was just different, right? Like I I had uh when I came to my new my new neighborhood, like the first the first friend I actually made was like a white dude. Um and you know, it was just it was different i was like "Yeah, you know, i don't really i don't really do this but uh you know he was real cool uh you know his family was real cool and and uh and i used to call him like my white black like my white black friend i was like "Oh, he, he's why did we do that back in the day everybody had one of those i don't know how you can kind of be black but that's you know uh, <laughs> so, so that was different but then but like I, I like the cool part was like i started to be exposed to like cultures outside of my own so like even at my middle school I mean, I went to school with white kids and Asian kids and Indian kids and like black kids. And like, uh, even though we found ourselves kind of like going back to like our own groups, just the ability to be able to be in class and to interact, engage with like people that were different um, was interesting. You know, at times it was a challenge because um, like I, I'll never forget it like middle school. So, so I, I like, I struggled in middle school just to to really like, I was struggling to find myself academically but also like socially. And like, I, it wasn't that I was a like, corny, but like, I just was trying to figure it out. Like I didn't understand what it meant to, come to your own. And mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it just was a, it was a really hard time because I, I like my white friend that I'm speaking about, um, it was at that moment that I saw what it was like to have like access and what it was like to be heard. Um, you know, he had similar issues that I did, but, you know, he, he had a skin tone that was more receptive to being heard and being received, and so whereas if I got tracked to go to, like, certain classes, he had the same issues, but was able to avoid those tracks because, you know, he just had family that could advocate in ways that, it, you know, it's not that mine couldn't, but just they weren't received in the same way, so. You know, it was interesting. It was it was I definitely appreciate it because there's no place that I feel like I don't fit in. Uh, it took me a minute to like adjust, like DC is its own culture, and it took me a minute to say, like, all right, I I, I could do this too. But uh, you know, yeah, yeah, hey, that's what it was like. Yeah,
1: that's what's up. Your beliefs about education and the potential of schooling took root when you were students across a variety of school settings, public school, Catholic, Montessori. Tell us about a pivotal experience that prompted you to think critically about the education system and your place in it.
2: So I had this one teacher. He was like a history teacher, Mr. Williams. um, And he was like the only teacher who gave me my first introduction into kind of like a critical, I wouldn't say critical race theory, but just more like of a opportunity to like reread history. And I remember, um, you know, he had this assignment and he was like, you know, what do you think is going to happen when? Columbus made sure with the Taino people. And I put, like, yeah, yeah it's going to be like exploitation and plunder and rape and, you know, imposing of Christianity. And I remember him saying, like, exactly, like A plus. And I was like, wait, what? Like, and, but every other narrative before that was just more about like, you know, this traditional narrative of history. And so I was wondering, like, wait, why am I getting this, like, literally I think this was like 11th grade and I was like I had you know three years of experience of opportunities to engage in like a critical history and that didn't happen and so I think I left high school being like okay I I, I want more of that and I remember going to Morgan State and having the opportunity to engage in like critical race theory critical gender theory um, and I felt like betrayed by my high school teachers I'm like yo there's a whole body of knowledge and narrative of history that happened um, that my teachers didn't expose me to, despite going to, you know, a more than predominantly black high school at the time. Um, and just wanted to think about like why that was and if there was any way to to to,
3: to rethink that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in my earlier years, ninth and 10th grade was a lot about, you know, academics with me was an exchange. You know, I come in, I, I show up, it was very formal. I do these things. I get this grade. Um, I feel like uh, my first two years was really symbolic of, like, this notion of education is something that's being done to me and not something that I am, like, learning to grapple with so that I can grow and develop in my thinking and my being um, in my seeing of the world. And uh, that was, like, slightly radically transformed when I went to the independent school. So, you know, at Matha formerly known for like sports and 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 those things um but the academics were good as well um but this Montessori high school I went to you know my graduating class was 22 people um I had classes of eight to ten people and all of the learning that we did was more about the application of the information as opposed to like just the consumption of it and so you know I'll never forget uh I think it was my 12th grade year Um, one of my, uh, I think it was my humanities teacher, asked me to do this uh, project, you know, so we had to go and we had to look at a school's, like, policies, like, all across the board, all of their policies, and we had to rewrite it in a way which we thought it would be, like, equitable and fair for all people, like, so we had to, like, examine these policies and talk about how they might be, like, unjust or not fair to certain groups of people or just, like, where certain loopholes are, and we had to rewrite it and then present it to the, like, present it, and, that was the first time like like the light went off and I was like, hmm, I can actually get with this because it was like not just me being able to take consume information and tell somebody that I understood it, but it was like I actually want you to take what we're doing in class, apply it uh, with a critical lens and then be able to tell me that you understand it through like your articulation of like this new policy or belief that you now have and you know and, and that was like kind of revolutionary me revolutionary for me. Uh, I still say that like that that didn't necessarily inspire me to like Want to go on to be an educator or to be part of education, but it did start to uh, shift my mindset and and force me to radically rethink about what education could and and should look like. And again, being I was one of like uh, my graduating class had maybe like two black guys in it, um, other dudes from D.C. Uh, and I. I was just like, man, more people need this, you know. And even in even in Silver Spring, which is not necessarily known as it's a good school district, like I still didn't get that type of education being in what was considered a good school district. So, yeah, that that was my my early uh, awakening to the idea of what education could be.
1: We hear that high school awakened you to what education could be and should be. Especially for Black people and other historically marginalized groups, as you transition to college, both of you continue to study Black history as a path towards a liberated Black future. What questions were you seeking to answer?
2: Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, I think for me, I was um, really obsessed with this notion of like, black existentialism and trying to understand um, what that actually mean in the context of like, freedom and responsibility. So I took hold to um, a lot of Frank's Fanon work, who was a psychologist from um, Algeria. And, you know, just this notion of like, questioning what does existence actually mean through through race and through, through gender and just trying to figure out what that actually meant to be like a person of color in the world and examine like the world in and it of itself um, as well. And I think I was also really trying to figure out for me, like what was going to be the, the best strategy for liberation? I think I was like falling into the trap of um, you know, either it's like Malcolm or Martin until I remember reading a lot of um, Mandela's work around his strategy and philosophy and just saw that there was like a a third way um, in a sense of um, a strategy for liberation. Um, So it was mostly about liberation and identity that I was trying to really figure out. It it was all, it was, in this um, Africana Studies course, um, and it was like a critical reading of um, Frederick Douglass's narrative. And we juxtaposed Frederick Douglass's narrative with this German philosopher, Hegel, um, who kind of like influenced Marx and what later became Marxism. And the conversation was like, you know, the question was like, what actually, what was the moment that Frederick Douglass became like liberated and free? And there was this huge debate that we were having because I think the traditional narrative is like, it's the moment when he learns how to read that he was like, I'll forever be free, right? And I think me and some of the other students were making this argument that like, that was a moment, but we saw like the fight with Covey W- which was one of his slave masters in um, in his narrative is actually the moment when he became free. It wasn't just simply like the knowledge of how to read, but it was actually like that knowledge plus that like act of physical resistance that led to him being liberated and being free.
1: Brandon, tell, tell us a little bit about your college journey at Fisk and the big questions that, uh, that you were grappling with.
3: You know, like any other college student, uh, I think the most fundamental question I found myself grappling with on a daily basis is who am I and, and how am I gonna show up in this world and what is my talent, what are my gifts and how might I use those gifts in order to influence the world for the greater good. And um, so you know, at first, every W. B. Du Bois, of course, is 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 the legend and somebody that we like we talk about all the time. Um, and so I think that I, I became obsessed with this notion of like understanding your voice and how to use writing, how to use speaking as a way to um, eloquently like articulate points so that like you can appeal to multiple people. Um, and so I found myself like. You, I actually, I got obsessed with James Baldwin. Um, I, I actually feel like, uh, you know, he was just a prolific writer and I, I thought that he was really bold for taking the dramatic stances that he did at such an early time where it was like not a great moment to be black and it was not a great moment to be a gay man. Um, and he did un- both of those unapologetically. And I, and I just was so uh, en- enamored by the ways in which he could show up into spaces and unapologetically be himself and influence those spaces to think different, differently, um, to challenge the status quo. Um, and so, you know, I guess I just sum it up to say like, I, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to help Black America really discover uh, its own identity and its own notion of like its voice and how to go in spaces and, and really be heard in a way um, which they could really influence and make change. And so, I mean, I, I still find myself, I still tell my kid, my own kids, the kids that I, that I work with on a daily basis, um, you know, your your voice is everything, you know, not to get spiritual or religious, but God gave us a voice. Um, he gave us the ability to be able to articulate our thoughts. And I just think there's so much power in words. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, my, my, my challenge is like, how do I get uh, literature. How do I get kids to find the words to express themselves uh, in a way which is eff- effective uh, for them?
1: It's fascinating to imagine Brandon in his monastery high school, thinking more black people should be exposed to exercises that sharpen your analytical skills. And Myron in DC, reconciling with the fact that he wasn't exposed to a body of knowledge that included critical race theory. In college, both examine Black history and Black identity, albeit from different theories and perspectives. In post-college, Myron and Brandon entered the education profession as teachers and instructional leaders, ultimately meeting in 2015 and opening the Social Justice School in the fall of 2020. The school description echoes their personal experiences and aspirations. At Social Justice School, students will engage in work that is meaningful, active, and rooted in problem-solving that contributes to a better world. How do you teach that?
2: Our philosophy and approach is that in order for students to um, become empathetic with the world, um, they first have to build empathy with themselves. And so we start... um, a lot of our work in um, our crew, which is our social and emotional framework, just really focusing on identity um, and having young people understand that identity is very complex. Um, and ultimately, that they are the designers of their identity. I think that's where we first introduced this notion of like what is that this notion that I am a designer. Um, and so we have young people engage in, you know, the concept of intersectionality um, as early as fifth grade which be maps and exploring that as well. Um, I think the second piece is, you know, if students can understand that the physical world is malleable, then they can also understand that the social world is malleable. And so at our school, our students go to um, this space called the liberation lab, where they get an opportunity to use technology like 3d printers and podcast stations one to learn how to like use those and have access to that technology but it's really with the spirit of them seeing themselves as designers and having them have the opportunity to um, go out in the world and begin to test out uh, potential solutions Um, and i would say thirdly and i'll let you brandon uh, pick up is just you know for us it's about giving students like the tools and the time and so liberation lab like i mentioned is not an elective it's something that our students go to every single day and that they have from fifth to eighth grade because you know this social justice for us is also about designing but it's about failing um and getting back up um, and having the opportunity to support it to continue to do that work and really making sure they're like we're not saying that every person has to be um you know an organizer everybody has to be like a writer for liberation for us we just want our young people to have like an ethos of social justice and we tell them every day like no matter the profession that you're in social justice means being empathetic and means like standing up for what's right um and figuring out ways for you to give back into your community so you know you can be an organizer you could be a musician You can work for the department of health you can work for DPW regardless of what pathway you choose we're not here to dictate that we just really want you to really have a love for yourself and a love for community Um, and that's what it means to be a scholar activist at the end of the day
3: yeah no doubt no doubt that's love that was beautifully stated that's it that's it i mean honestly like in order for kids to have empathy, they have to first be seen. Like, I, I imagine most of you, most of you all remember, like, when you were young, like, you probably talked profusely in your house, like, mom, dad, or, you know, always was just talking, talking, talking. But your parents were always listening, right? And so, uh, unintentionally, like, it gave this notion that my voice is important, my voice matters, and that my voice has value. And so, you know we fundamentally believe that like school spaces have to represent that same understanding and so like through the structure that we have called crew is like the first way in which like all of our kids are just seen and i think that as they are seen then they start to discover that not only are they seen but they're also heard and that their voices matter and then the second part is understanding and being able to have the language to speak to the things that they're experiencing. So we have this practice called naming and noticing. And, you know, I remember growing up, there was these moments of discomfort that I would feel and I couldn't quite find the words to describe what it is that I was experiencing. I was 15, I remember I I was in this 7-Eleven and this woman, um, she essentially profiled me, Um, used a bias statement based upon like her understanding of what it meant to be a young black boy. And, uh, you know, she, basically enacted hate upon me. Um, she, um, she, She enacted violence against me. However, I was 15 and I didn't have the language nor the understanding to unpack the feelings that I was experiencing based upon what she was doing to me. And so one of the things that we do starting at fifth grade is start to teach kids, not only about identity, but how to understand the language around identity and the language around injustice and see it in themselves, but also see it in these larger contexts that they play out in like real world settings. And I think uh, that that's powerful. You know, when a a child, no matter how old, can name, notice and acknowledge the things that they are experiencing, um, then they innately have power. um, And that power gives them the the freedom, uh, the fight to be able to like, to speak out against the things that, that uh, they feel are, are wrong or unjust. So, you know, that, at least that's, that's where we're at. We're in the first year of it. So, you know, much more work to do, but that's where we're at. We're fighting the good fight. Now. We're fighting the good fight.
0: We saw a quote from you, Myron, uh, where you said, um, schools too often limit social justice learning to policy discussions or civics classes. And in turn, students look to protest as a sole method to enact change. The Black Lives Matter movement has really gotten a great amount of attention uh, after the uh, murder of George Floyd, and we're seeing so many protests going on. Or we saw so many protests. Of course, they've died down a fair amount. But what, besides a protest, is social justice? And how do we? How are you transferring
2: that with the work you do? Yes, yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think this goes back to our um, concept of having our young people see themselves as designers of a more just world. And uh, for us, um, that's our language, you know, like that that's what we really want our young people to really see, um, see themselves as because there's so much beauty in seeing yourself in a designer because you acknowledge that there was a system that was designed to intentionally create inequity, and as a designer, you have the opportunity to redesign it. And we really want our young people to um, acknowledge that protest is a form of design, Um, but so so is art, so is music, so is um, utilizing resources within the community to solve problems, to not be dependent upon um like the system to trying to solve problems as well and you know that we see as the like creative um genius um, of our young people and you know when we think about different historical movements even if we think about you know the survival programs that the black panther party led you know that's the part that often gets left out of the narrative it's like yes they were about armed self-defense but they legitimately built programs for around like housing and food and healthcare for folks to, to do the work. And, and that's what it means to be a designer to say, you know what, like, let me think about the resources I have and how can I combine those resources up, put it in a blender, and make something beautiful to, to, to solve, to get closer towards liberation.
1: And again, that's also, in my opinion, a very revolutionary uh, situation to put Black and brown children in as actors and agents versus just being recipients and people who are acted upon.
2: Yeah, and I think like that goes back to your your earlier point, Rhonda, like as we were it was really hard for us to bake our um, our mission statement like I mean, Brenda can tell you, we had like a lot of drafts. (laughs) We are designers, so we had like a lot of post-its. And what was hard is like, you know, we had to make this really firm decision and say like, we're actually not gonna put college and career ready in our mission because like, the moment you attach that to your mission, you're already starting to potentially go into this narrative where like the purpose of school is to accumulate more wealth. Um, for your individual self. And I remember, you know, being a teacher and showing students the graph of like, if you get a master's degree, you make this much and a bachelor's degree, you get this much. And that's not Lies. Lies,
1: lies, Right, right,
3: right. Potentially make that. Right, right, On <laughs> like, average, on average. How about your loans? How about
1: yeah, that negative? About the loans. How about <laughs> that they'll negative be- that comes <laughs> later in your income statement? <laughs> when it goes out the door okay but we digress exactly
2: and so i think we you know we wanted to say to our families and to our students like we're not trying to get more black and brown folks on top of the pyramid we want our students to rethink like why does the social pyramid and the way it's built um exist and like blow it up and, and design something new um and the other part of our mission is like you know we say the word catalyze um, an integrated community of scholar activists by design and with real intentionality. intentionality. And we could have easily just said, social justice school will, but again, that's like that top down, like I'm, I am as the educator hold power and knowledge and I'm giving this to you and depositing in you. Whereas like we see our scholar activists, they already designers. You know, they're, they're living and surviving as black and brown kids in America. So clearly they know how to design. We just want to add on to their designer mindset and introduce them to new tools so that's why we chose the word catalyze as opposed to saying like social justice school will because we're not we're not the saviors of our, our
1: community our, our kids are it's in how um Paulo Freire just continues to pay dividends like he never gets old it's crazy right?
2: <laughs>
1: people will still be reading pedagogy of the press you know like 30 40 years from now I guess right. because the system is so resistant to change because our education system is so integral to our, our economic structure as well and that's not going anywhere
0: what do you think the reason is that more schools don't have a similar mission or think outside that box of we're going to make this school. So you go to college, we're going to make this school so you can make money. We're going to make this school versus we want this whole child to be able to thrive in this world as a, the beautiful human that they are.
3: One of our other friends that started a school, I Dream Academy, she would continuously bring up this point of like, just the power of dreaming and having the ability to like, dream of what could be um, and I say that because you know the longer that you find yourself in educational spaces the harder it can be to dream um, and the easier it is to recreate what already exists um, just because it's familiar um, and so I would say like part of the reason I, I, I feel like it, it is hard to to imagine or to see more schools like social justice is because it's hard to dream or to think of a world where something like this could exist um, and the second thing I would say is like, uh, you know, we fundamentally make, take, take a really strong stance in a way in which uh, schools sometimes try to really be neutral. I mean, I, I think that schools right now, to be appealing to a lot of audiences, will say all the flashy, like, buzzwords to we're a Montessori or we do social justice things. But to explicitly, you know, use the name, we are the social justice school, is a radical stand about who we are and what we represent. Um, and I think that it's it's uncomfortable to sometimes take positions that are very firm and pronounced in the way that we do. Um, and I think that that's for, frankly, you know, that's what makes us unique. Um, there is no hiding behind who we are. Myron, you, you remember when we were trying to think about our name and we were like, well, maybe we'll just be the Anna Cooper because and, and like we had to sit with ourselves and was like, what is this tension? Like, why are we so scared to say we know what we're doing? Why don't we want to call call it that? And you know, Caroline kind of pushes like. Come on, y'all. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I I just think that like it is it is hard to take a strong stand about what you are and what you believe, especially like in in environments where schools try to play this neutral role of we're just like the environment that moves people along. And then the second thing is it is hard to dream. It is hard to dream about uh, a new space and a new way of doing uh, learning, a new way of doing uh, instruction, uh, because, uh, we've just been ins- institutionalized to believe that schooling has to look and be a, su- a certain way, um, and that's just fundamentally not, it's not true. And there's other schools that are showing that that is not true, uh, but not in the way technically that we are. Um, and then thirdly, I guess I would just say is that, um, uh, sadly, I, you know, I, I think that some people probably just wouldn't think that it's as important. Um, I think that. This is an unfortunate thing. It's, you know, when George, everything transpired with George Floyd, like, you know, we, we all know in the black community or in, you know, communities of color, it definitely wasn't the first one, but for whatever reason, like finally it caught America's attention and everybody was outraged and wanted to do something about it. But, you know, America has this notion of amnesia where we quickly forget. And, you know, there's still very much protest going on, but I would say like the movement of social justice to some degree is still has has, um, has, has dissipated a little bit.
1: Due to COVID, dap and hugging have been on hiatus for about the last year or so. How are you dealing with that?
3: Something about the hug that I just—you know—I'm missing it right now. I, I'm, I'm a toucher. I gotta—I gotta feel you. You know, we gotta be—you know—connected. Um, so I, I am—I am definitely missing that right now. Um, it's a big part of my leadership style. We—we—we we, we always say at SJS that you know, to be a part of our community is to be seen, known, loved and then challenged in that order. Um, And so one of the way in which like we always would show staff that they are seen and that they are known is just by the way that we connect with them. you Know probably like two or three of our staff, you know, every time I say, just come here, just like let me, you know, and then, then yeah. my fellas, you know, I hug my fellas too because my Myron and I we hugged it, we hug it up, right, Myron? All right, right. yeah, it's a okay. you know, <laughs> thing, it. we daff up too, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. what you
1: are know. you telling your staff and the other folks that you're spending time with when you daft them specifically? What are you trying to communicate with them?
2: I mean, I think for me, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just love, you know, I try to tell our staff all the time to like, you know, from an authentic way, like we love you. We have nothing but love and respect for you. So I think when we, commute, when we when we do deck them up, it's like, like, this is, this is our crew, these are people. We're gonna, we gonna
3: ride for you. I think we should a little Yeah, I think the thing that I, I always wanna express is like, there is nothing that you could do that is gonna change the way that I show up for you. Like, I, I love you that deeply. Like, um, when I choose to love you, um, it is an intentional act um, and it is something that I will continue to pursue um, because I see you and I see the best in you. Even when the worst in you comes out, I, I see the greatness in you. Um, and I see who you're trying to become. I see all the ways that you're not there yet maybe, um, but I accept that because I accepted those things in me and, and you know, hopefully you know, my staff accept those things in, my, in myself as well.
1: So you guys are very vulnerable, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, I, w- I would say
3: you know, there's, there's a scale oh, of-
1: rubbing
0: like i don't know, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, a, it's a scale of uh of one to ten Rhonda uh we've, we've done several interviews bro you at
1: one and <laughs> the word intimacy 12
0: <laughs> the word intimacy has come up in each one of our interviews in one way or another and we have had some brothers that are on the one scale and we've had some brothers that you know the eight to ten scale and i definitely appreciate y'all uh, being on the eight to 10 side of the story, Aaron scale. is
1: not telling the
0: whole story. I can, I can, <laughs> I can go, I can.
1: Aaron is not telling the whole story. About Aaron.
0: Talk, talk you to You know, both. I fluctuate. I go from, I could be a, a one one day and the next day I'm like, whoa, he turned into a, a nine. What's going on? So,
1: what about when Rhonda first suggested intimacy? What was your reaction? Tell that part. I was
0: like, I was like, that's not, the guy's not ready for that. <laughs> 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 We're not ready to bring that word. But it has it literally has naturally come up in How all eight times? of our interviews. How
1: many times? In eight
0: interviews, has come up at least six and six of them, right? Yeah. I'm just saying. Without us saying it.
1: Yeah, I'm so. just saying. The it's word has, has definitely that's what, come we, up.
0: That is what I've come to realize in our depth project uh, journey, that it, it is about intimacy. It is about relationships. It is about closeness. And when we give that depth. That's what we're doing. We're we're being we're, we're having a, a, a intimate Hi. moment with one another to say, I see you, to say, you know, to show that dignity and pride.
1: We're curious about how you evolved to that point. Would you say you would have been as comfortable five or ten years ago? Were you just born that way? Or has it been a journey? I imagine that it has been a journey, particularly because education is a space predominantly occupied by white females who have a particular style of communication and black men have a different style of communication generally speaking, and it can be quickly interpreted.
2: Yeah, it definitely has been a journey. I mean, I think, um, you know, I remember experiencing a bunch of like microaggressions when I was trying to come into that space of being my own authentic space. And so I feel like I suppressed it for, for a long time
1: is that out of an act of self-preservation?
2: Yeah, yeah, really, you know, and just being like, okay, well, I think there's also this evolution of like, I remember the first time when I was like, you know what, I'm gonna roll my sleeves up and show like all my tattoos. And it was so Do free. Do see your
1: tattoos. Yeah, yes. I, have, I, have, I, have,
2: I have a lot of them. There's a DC I,
1: I, flag in there. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah. There's There's
2: there's, every, there's, there's all, all of this.
1: <laughs> BJ, I saw yours too.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. We out here. We out yeah, here. we out here. That's <laughs> I'm about the to get. Energy. I'm about
1: to get mine. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Ready. We, we always more. Ready. I'm about to get more. <laughs> um. And so just being I never,
2: like,
0: I can never make up my mind what I want. I, I should have <laughs> Yeah, I know. right? <laughs> <Don't get
2: touched>. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely takes me a while too, uh, but I but I love it, and I think you know. I remember we had like as we were doing the charter hearing, trying to get our charter approved and we had opportunity to like, as Brandon calls it, like go back and watch our film. And I remember like seeing how Brandon and I interacted as we were engaging in questions with the charter board. And it was like, we were just having a conversation with ourselves. You know what I mean? Like, and you know, like, there were things on the side that no one couldn't see. Like I remember explicitly like Brandon dapping me up when like he thought I did like a really good response you know what I mean I think we just come in, I just come to this place of like you know what I have to be myself because there's no other way of not being And what's the risk that of like me there's more risk of me not being myself than being my authentic self and, and showing up you know
3: yeah I would say for me it's definitely been a progressive thing uh, I always say that love it uh, love is as, as a courageous act but it's also a contagious act um, and, uh, it took me a long time to be that courageous, particularly just because, uh, in, in black culture, black mask, like the, this notion of black masculinity is so like nearly, nearly defined that there is often little space to be anything other than like hyper-masculine, you know? So, you know, I, I jokingly say this thing about the hug, like I'm a hugger, but like for a long time, it was like, Hey bro, like right, we, right. we do this. <laughs> And, and and it's like you knew you was real close because then you would bring it in, but if you weren't that close, it was like somebody was strong on you. You know, you had to stay at a distance. And so, um, I, I just kind of looked at the destruction that I caused by enacting like what I believed to be like my black masculinity on other like black boys, and how harmful that was. And like uh, I think it was like my third year teaching, and I just like made a conscious effort to like do something different. And um, I don't know what I was watching, but it, it was something that was just like, you know, you just like just just hug them, just hug them. And so literally, uh, you know, I walked around for like the next week and like, you know, I would, you know, put my arm around like, it was like, hey, boy, I love you. And he what, what? no, it's like, look, look, I love you. Like, you know, I, and when I say I love you, it means I just see everything in you. I see the potential in you. I see the greatness in you. I see you and I see all that you're not still. And I love you anyway. And like just like that. And, you know, some people responded to it, some people didn't. Um, there's one particular young man and like, you know, the, it, I could tell like the light went on in his lives, like the, the closeness of that connection and just me putting my arm around him and embracing him and telling him like, I love you. Like that was the courageous act, but then it was also contagious because like, he who was a, like more uh, aggressive man became softer and I would see different sides of them that were more sensitive and uh, it was liber- it was liberating for him. And I know it was liberating for me um, and so I just fundamentally believe that, and I chose when I when I you know took on this leadership position, they like, I was just gonna be rad- radically authentically myself. And that means unapologetically loving to the people that I encounter. And it's hard as hell some days, I'll be honest. Cause sometimes people do stuff that hurts, right? And when people yeah. do things that hurt, your natural things like, okay, I'm gonna close back up because this is not a safe space to uh, to, to show up. Um, but those are spaces often that need love the most. So. Um, you know, just continue to be uh, courageous,
1: so I can spread that spread that good love
3: with, with other people. Yeah.
1: I noticed in a t shirt that you were wearing in one of the videos that said Christian or said to the effect of Christian, yeah, perfect, now. Yeah. So, if we add that element of a Christian belief to masculinity, how does your faith influence how you show up as a black man?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's every I, it's everything. Um, you know, my faith uh, started which started really around that time. I grew up in the church, but I don't think I understood what it really meant to be a Christian. Um, as I started to walk as an adult male with other Christian brothers that were really walking out this notion of like radical love, of like you know, guys. I would go to this thing called uh, we would have small groups and guys would just be sharing it all. I
1: just <laughs> <whoop>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lean lie. back.
3: Right. And I'm just like, yo, what what type of group is this? Um, but I also like watched like people get free of burdens that they carried for so long um, that they just felt like they, they had been judged by, that they could not, they had to carry in silence. Um, and as they shared those things and they started to get more truth um, and, a, and a new notion about what it meant to be, you know, uh, a believer, a Christian, uh, you know, I just saw a different side of them. And so, uh you know, that's, that's really where my trans, my transformation started. That's where my understanding of love, not being a feeling, but being an action and a choice, uh, really derived from. Um, and, and, uh, you know, since I, since I really started my journey with Christ and, um, and walking with the Lord, like it's, uh, it's radically transformed my life. And, uh, you know, it's even funny, uh, my if you not mind, like me sharing, like, just like the notion of our relationship and coming together as like believers and you know and even grappling sometimes, you know, there's you know, even as you walk the walk, like there's still times we just like, you know, because Yo, a lot Jesus. of other brothers like right. this white Jesus, this white Jesus yeah. safe for you, like, like oh, this Bible. <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, now we're definitely gonna take it light. What music is giving you life? Music or art that is giving you life or a movie. Something yeah, that what's you can a, engage. What's a heavy in. Rotation? Or a show that's giving you life.
2: Let me see. Heavy
3: rotation. Let me look at title real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Man, so I, I actually stumbled on I have an Apple playlist, and I stumbled on a playlist uh that I found an Apple. Um my 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 pops was like a real he was heavy and he has a whole bunch of vinyls still like at the house we don't use them, but he has them. Um, And so he used to play music all the time. And so, uh, he, you know, he loved like OJ's Whispers. Um, He loved Teddy, Uh, you know. And so it literally, it's 82 songs. And I mean, you want to talk about 80s best hits. Mm. Um, And so I can't name just like one song. I don't know if there's one song, but the playlist itself has like really been giving me life and like, you know, uh, Yep, it's been giving me so much life. I really appreciate it. Um, and then, um, uh, this is more current, but Jasmine Sullivan has this song, and I, I don't know why it's escaping me right now, but I, I only like it because my kids really like it. Like, mm. I think it's called Let It Burn. Let It Burn. Uh, yeah, and yeah. my son would be, he'd be like, Daddy, play that Let It Burn. And like, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, selfishly I, I like the song just because, you know, he likes it, and my daughter be like, Let it burn. And, you know, she says it too. So that, that's where I'm going right now.
1: Your kids sound
3: hilarious.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So how will the education landscape look different in five years because of the work that you're doing at the social justice school?
2: Well, one hope that we have, I mean, we really do believe in the power of like um, the makerspace education, and we hope that there will be more makerspaces that are Um, rooted in social justice um, as, you know, the landscape changes. Um, We also hope that schools will hold the mirror up to themselves and ask themselves the hard question of like, you know, what does it really mean to be an anti-racist organization? Um, And how do we critically reflect on our own policies and practices? Not because we worried about you know, data getting leaked or making the news for doing something, but more about like, we really want to hold ourselves to these values um, and and having leaders um, do that kind of work. And I think lastly, we envision that the charter landscape or the the educational sector is really a place where um, school leaders see power and teachers see power to students and students have a real place not only where they can advocate, but actually see that advocacy turn into policy changes um, and the type of schools that they want, um, and parents also getting that power as well.
1: That's our episode for this week sincere thank you to Myron and Brandon for an enlightening conversation and raising our consciousness about being change agents. We are confident that they will realize their vision and would love to have them back to hear all about it. Please visit the Social Justice School online at the socialjusticeschool.org to learn more about what they do and to support them. And visit the DAP project online to subscribe to our newsletter and to read the show notes. You can like and subscribe to The DAP Project on Apple Podcasts.
0: Speaking of reading, The DAP Project is reading The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. Buy it at your local independent bookstore, preferably Black-owned, and join us on Instagram Live on Sunday, February 28th for our first DAP Project book talk.
1: The DAP Project has a book club, TDPB Reading. Join us. On the socials, I tweet randomnalia at educate underscore Rhonda, post pics of my auntie life on Insta at Rhonda Henderson, and talk books, books, and more books at Ruby Reads Chocolate City, also on the gram. Aaron Harvey, are you on the socials?
0: Yes. Contact me at Aaron.Stalworth on IG. And, of course, The Depp Project on IG. the.dep.project
1: thanks for rocking with us this week <laughs> Now, for real though resistance is a highway with many lanes and i hope you find yours
0: take care folks